0: Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. It's a new setup today, isn't it? I feel closer to you. I like it. But I have to also do a lot of turning. So bear with me as I learn our new arrangement. If you're visiting today, welcome. It's good to have you here. And after the service, I'll be hanging around in the back. I'd love to chat with you. It's, uh, it is today uh, that we mark... I, I, I give or take, we've diverged from the Gospel of Mark for a little mini-series here and there, but by and large, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for 52 weeks <laughs> today. <laughs> so we've been in it for quite some time, and it's a, it's a great gospel. Uh, the whole gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have noted that Mark tells us the gospel kata mark, or according to Mark. So we have right off the bat, one year ago, we, on this day, we said we're gonna talk about the gospel, which is the story of Jesus completing or entering into and finishing the work that God had begun, and this is the way that Mark tells the story. So, without much further ado, let's begin. I wanna start today taking us back a few months ago. I think it was about that, doesn't really matter. It's back to that scene where Jesus is in the boat with the disciples, and it's right after the miracle picnic up on the North Shore of Galilee. They had 4,000 people. Jesus fed them. The disciples and he get into the boat, and they say, my goodness, we're out of food. What the heck are we gonna do? (laughs) And Jesus says the most profound statement to them. He asks them a question. He says, do you have dysfunctional eyes and ears? kind of like, what's the problem here? He says, but he uses more specific language. He says, you have, do you have ears that don't hear? You have eyes, don't you see? And if you remember when we looked at that scene, I mentioned that Jesus was doing something more than just commenting on their ability to perceive well. He was actually tying Old Testament language, an Old Testament idea that had a really specific meaning. So you read through the Old Testament, and there's lots of warnings against sin and evil. Don't do sin and don't be evil. And then with those warnings come consequences. So if you do this, this is going to be what happens in your life or in your nation and so forth. And there's all kinds of wreckage and corruption and chaos described. But when it talks about being blind, blinded, or deafened, when it uses that language of you have eyes but you can't see, you have ears but you can't hear, It's almost exclusively talking about idolatry, worshiping something or someone other than God. And we even defined idolatry a little bit closer to say attaching your heart to someone or something for ultimate security, okay? It's, It's that idea that if I have this, if I do this, if that person, if I own this, whatever it would be. When this happens, I will be secure. So something like this. We might say with our brains and our mouths, God is sovereign. God is holy. God is in control. God is in charge. He alone can save me. He alone can give me life. And then we feel. So we say that. Nobody, nobody's like, Mm-mm. You know, if, if we read the Bible, if we believe in Jesus, we say that. But then the way that our internal life The turmoil inside of us feels is we feel something like, if I were to lose my home or my money or my loved ones, then my life would be over, okay? We kind of, we look at the news this week and say, wow, what if that was my house? I can't imagine, just that sense of life would be lost if I lost my money and my home or my loved ones. And that helps us to see a little bit of how much our hearts are attached to those things, okay? So, idolatry is attaching your heart to something or someone for ultimate security, and we notice that when you do that, you cannot see or hear Jesus for real. So the disciples are with Jesus constantly. They have the most access to the Savior. He teaches them directly, one-on-one, and they're totally not getting it, and he subtly, maybe not so subtly, says that's because you have your hearts attached to something else. So, we talked a lot about that and about what idolatry was and how it works, but one thing we didn't talk about, and this is where I want to go today, we didn't talk about idolatrous religion or the nature of an idolatrous religion. And I would say this right off the bat. I think that idolatrous religion is nos- it's notoriously... Stable and comforting. You might say, Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that, but let's just think about that as we go. I think that idolatrous religion ends up being very stabilizing for us and very comforting toward us. It it is something that orients our hearts onto something we create. Yes? That's the whole nature of an idol. It's something I build. Now, what do we build? We don't build stuff that we hate (laughs) or dislike. We build things that we like. So if I start out and I say, I'm going to create this thing, I'm going to build it the way I like it, and then it's going to be the thing that I drive at for feelings of security and what I like. We tend to like what we create, which means we feel stable inside the context of things we've built. But when you attach your heart to the real God, Yahweh, the creator, the uncreated creator of all the cosmos, when you attach your heart to him, you might just experience the volatile, disruptive power of God as he recreates you. He restores you and transforms you. It's like he's shaking the world by the shoulders when we see Jesus coming in. It's like he's grabbing, he's in the belly of of the religious core of the Jewish people, and it's like he's grabbing it by the shoulders and shaking it as hard as he can. And then after he's done shaking, he wraps them in a big hug. But he has to jostle them out of the complacency and comfort that they have created for themselves. And so he uses idolatry language for his own disciples. And I think there's a religious atmosphere that has been created, which makes people feel stable and secure and comforted. And Jesus has been coming in for a very long time, blasting it. After all, he is not a tame lion, said Mr. Tumnus. No, said Lucy, but he is good. We want to tame Jesus a lot, don't we? Although Jesus first formed us in the life of our mothers, the process of being born again is the process of Jesus reforming us. We're now being, right now being, fearfully and wonderfully remade. He is knitting us together within his own life. And for a human being like you or me to be rebuilt... It is always disorienting and scary and uncomfortable. Unless you're already perfect, then, then you're good. I am not. So that's what I want to walk away with this morning. That's what I'm hoping we can come to. I want to walk out of here this morning, and, and I think that by focusing on three short stories, if you will, three really brief scenes, and then an overview of Jesus' impact in in the temple. That's what we've been in, in chapters 11 and 12. It's all been this temple episode. I want to overview that and say, and I want to look at how Jesus is present within their system and what happens. And I think that we can walk away this morning with this, a willingness to accept the fact that healthy church life is going to be disorienting to us. It is going to constantly challenge us with new questions that don't have easy answers. It is going to constantly disrupt our life if it's good and healthy community. And it's even going to be really painful at times. We've picked that up from Jesus so far, haven't we? That's what he means when he says bearing a cross. Next week... So this closes out the temple scene. Next week, we're going to enter into Mark's apocalypse, where there'll be talk about intense natural disasters, earthquakes, wars among the world. I don't know how we're going to connect it to our modern day, but we'll give it a shot. Okay. That starts next week. But right now, let's go to these last three scenes. And then after we do, I'll try to trace that thread through the two chapters with you. So we're in Mark chapter 12, and we will start today in verse 35. This is kind of in that same scene. He's been talking with the scribes and the rabbis and the Sadducees and so forth. Today we see that same sort of uh, person in view when Jesus says this, verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Okay? Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord, so God, said to my Lord, or my master, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him, calls the Messiah, Lord Lord. You might see in parentheses, Lord over him. So if he calls him that, how then can he be his son? And the large crowd, we're told by Mark, listened to Jesus with delight. They were stoked. You see what he's doing here? Jesus is taking a very common, understood, comfortable belief that everybody had, and it was just kind of a given. The Messiah will come from the line of David and therefore will be one of the sons of David. It's just what was being taught. And Jesus comes to him and He says, so why do they teach that? Did you ever think about it? And they're like, well, yeah, we thought about it quite a bit. He's like, but it says in the Old Testament in Psalm 110 that David will regard the Messiah as his master. How could David regard him as his master if he's one of his offspring, if he's lower than him? I think the legal experts in the day would say, well, our religion has been pretty, uh, we're in consensus on this issue, bro. It's how it works. The truth is that the Messiah comes from the line of David. Were they wrong about this? Was Jesus trying to correct a wrong belief? This right here, this opening scene is where I'll spend the most time because I think this is really getting at the heart of it. This theme here in this text is part of, it was woven into the songs we've sung already about Jesus being the all, being superior to all. So why is he saying that the Messiah should not be called the Son of David? In Mark 10, just a few chapters back, he heals a guy named Bartimaeus, or we call him Bartimaeus sometimes. He heals this blind man. Bartimaeus calls him the son of David, and Jesus doesn't correct him. The crowds have called Jesus the son of David, and Jesus doesn't seem to have any problem with that. You go to Matthew's gospel, and Matthew will spend a tremendous amount of time writing out a whole lineage for the sole purpose of proving that Jesus is of the line of David. Paul, in his writing, will talk about Jesus as being the son of David, and he uses that to prove that Jesus is legitimate. So, all over in the New Testament, we have Jesus being associated with the son of, son of David language, so why does he challenge it? I think there's two reasons. On one hand, I think that he did not want to get bound up with the expectations associated with son of David language. We've talked about this before. Those crowds up above that were gathering around Jesus were stoked. They're like, he's going to be the one who brings back the kingdom of David. So Jesus wants to dissociate himself from David imagery, if you will, because what was David? A military hero. He knew how to fight bad guys and kill them. Jesus is not coming to do that at all, and he doesn't want to get associated with that messianic expectation. So I think on one hand, he's saying, "Uh, that's not the right title for me overall, because I am not going to be operating the way that David did. I'm going to be doing something totally different. So I think that's one reason. I I think that the other reason is that this title simply wasn't enough. It's not that it was inherently wrong, but it just wasn't enough. He's essentially saying that according to the Scriptures, this son of David is also the Lord over David. So it just doesn't add up. If you're trying to fit me into what you already know, what you already think, the way that you already know the world works, it can't be that way. There's no possible way that David would call one of his offsprings his master. So this has to be something different. Yes, he comes from David's line, but no, he's not just an ancestor of the great King David. He's not King David Jr., if you will. He's somebody far expanded beyond that, even to the point where he'll be the, the, he, will, he will be over the greatest king in the history of the nation. David will bend his knee to this anointed one. He's the Lord over even David. So, while son of David is true in a genetic sense, that's about the end of its truth. In all other ways, this Jesus is so much more. Now, that kind of closes that first scene, but before we move on, I want to tease this out a little bit more, and I'd invite you to contemplate this for a minute. Has Mark here given us a picture of Of people who are just crazy maniacs because they had a crazy idea that the Messiah would come from the line of David. No, that's not what he's doing. These Jewish folks are not crazy people coming up with crazy interpretations. They're reading the Bible. They're trying to make sense of the anointed one, what the Messiah would be like. So Mark's not saying they were just stupid for thinking that. Well, then is Jesus swooping in and saying, hey, bust out the gel pens and your erasers and let's fix the Bible because it wasn't written well? You know, let's do a little editing project on the OT. No, I don't think that's what he's doing. He says he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he gave that statement. It was was God speaking through David when that was uttered. So he's not saying that the Bible was wrong. But he is suggesting that these religious leaders had missed something very important. And I think it certainly expands beyond just the leaders. This was just a common belief. Hey, guys, don't you see how David was calling the Messiah his superior way back then? Well, yeah, Jesus, we saw that. We totally read that. But here's the deal. We know for sure that the Messiah will restore those golden years of previous great generations. We know that the Messiah is going to come to restore David's kingdom. We know that. We believe that. He's going to make Israel great again in the same way that David did a long time ago. That's what he's going to do. And Jesus is like, no, he won't. (laughs) Boom. No, he won't. You've misinterpreted the Bible in a very significant way. What? How so? How did we misinterpret it? Well, for one thing, you're imagining God's Messiah as you remember your war heroes of old. But the Messiah is not just a chip off the old block. He's someone far greater. He's someone far superior to David. And I know that this is really going to spin you out, but the truth is that the Messiah is not going to operate like David did, the great warrior king. Just like you do, I think everybody in this room, just like I do, the people of God have very deep internal turmoil. Everybody in this room struggles with deep internal conflict, deep pain, confusion, doubt, suffering, every single one of us. And it is the condition of humanity to say that deep internal turmoil inside my heart is the fault of that dude. It's the president. It's the government. It's the mayor. It's the earthquake. It's something other than me. It's just what we do. They had sicknesses of the heart that led to very negative consequences in their life, and that's what you and I have every day. But they enjoyed believing that all of these problems were caused by other people. They were caused by the sinful world. That they were caused by the people who have different politics. They were caused by the people who had their own self fabricated morals. If they weren't fabricating their own moral system, then my life wouldn't be such a problem. Don't we think this way? We think this way. Even if it's not so vicious and condemning toward others, we think things like this. Man, if only I could find more time in my week, then my relationship with God could be better. That's the problem. It's my scheduling. It's not a deep internal turmoil inside my own heart and soul. It's all this other stuff. It's what people expect of me. It's what I'm supposed to be doing. We think that our relationship with God can only go so far because of all of the sin that others do. So when you think this way, your Savior is somebody who's going to come and fix other people, (laughs) right? Your Savior is one who's going to fix other people or do away with other people because they're the problems. It's the one who finally comes to destroy these unholy, degenerate, godless sinners. That's going to be the Messiah. So just imagine how destabilizing it was when Jesus comes into their scene and he starts hanging out with all of these ungodly, degenerate sinners. And not only is he hanging out with them, but he's talking to them with respect. And not only is he talking to them with respect, but he's healing their bodies He's giving them sustenance, food and water and drink. He's stepping outside of the boundaries of righteousness into the deeply unclean part of the world. And they're just like, what are you doing, dude? If you're gonna go over there, take a spear or a knife or something and get it done, save us. And Jesus keeps reorienting that, doesn't he? He says, no, you've heard it said, but I say to you, He's changing up the way that they have thought. His very presence in their lives serves as a judgment on where they were at. He becomes, Jesus literally becomes an explosion in their own self-created kingdom. He blows it up. His very presence becomes a critique of the way that they think and operate, what they value the most and in this scene he has critiqued their core view on what salvation is by by them saying he's going to be a chip off the old block and another war hero and that's going to be what salvation is he's saying oh no it is so much more than that i'm going to teach you how to be content in all things if i could use paul's language from a different text not i'm going to take away all of the things that discontent you i'm going to teach you how to live i'm going to change you you might ask yourself, what was I expecting when I stepped into Jesus' presence? What was I hoping was going to happen? If you were expecting soft comfort and warm inspiration, then meeting Jesus, the untamed lion, was probably pretty disruptive. You're meeting that untamed, undomesticated way in truth and life. And it's so much more than what we expect, and it's exponentially more than what we want. When you step into the presence of Jesus, I will say this, you better be willing to be judged. That's like the worst thing you can do in our world today. It would be better to get caught murdering than get caught judging. And yet Jesus comes in with discernment. He's shedding light into darkness to show you what's wounded and broken and rotting and decaying, and to heal it. So Jesus enters into the scene, and, and we have to be willing to be judged by him, to stand before him and say, here I am, all of me. Help. Not, here I am, I'm awesome, deal with these idiots. You know? We have to be willing to be critiqued, Willing to stand in that furiously beautiful light that he is in a dark world. How do we expect church life to be? What is our measure? Are we more prone to cry foul when something hurts? Or are we more prone to cry foul when we're just constantly comforted and made to feel good? I'll tell you what. If we get through this next year, and every single one of you says, oh man, being at Central Bible Church is the most easy, comforting, convenient, wonderful, heartwarming, it's just, it is, feels so good, then I'm gonna regard my job as having, I will have failed miserably. <laughs> I wanna bring Jesus to us. And Jesus wakes us up out of our slumber and stupor, and he says, you need to show up for real life Instead of hiding in the shadows, thinking that you have it already. Side, let's do a little side note. Why do you think that everybody was so stoked when he said this about the teachers of the law? It says they were totally, they're like, woohoo, yeah, go get him, Jesus. I don't know. I have no answer for that question. I read that, I'm like, why were they so jazzed? This crowd is a weird crowd, isn't it? They, you don't know where they're at. In like two more days, they're going to be saying, kill him, kill him, killing Jesus. They're not, they don't like him. I don't know why they're totally stoked. I think that they could be like we sort of get when when a big leader is getting hammered by some critic, you know, here's the big Jewish leaders and Jesus is kind of throwing grenades at them and they're like, yeah, get him. Or maybe some of them actually believed him. I don't know, but the crowds are totally excited. At least we know that everybody's paying attention and they do seem favorable to what Jesus is saying for whatever reason. So, let's pick it up again in verse 38. It says that as he taught, Notice, Mark lets us know he was teaching all kinds of stuff. This is the one bit that Mark wants us to see. He just takes a little excerpt out of a longer teaching. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They walk around in flowing robes, they like to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Ooh, okay. Based on what he says here, how would you describe how these teachers of the law like to roll? How would you kind of try to get at their character? What, are, what kinds of guys are these? Well, they like walking around in long flowing robes. The long flowing robe is a status symbol, isn't it? It means you're not going to be doing any kind of hard work. You're above that. You're probably not going to be needing to move fast wearing a robe. That was a status symbol in the first century. So they liked to walk around and tell everybody that they were kind of the top dogs in town. They liked to be prominent. They liked to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They wanted to have the Moses seat in the synagogue. I was in a synagogue up in uh, in Magdala, where we think Mary Magdalene was from, on in Galilee, and it's the synagogue is like, uh, I mean, it's it's not big. It's like those two pillars there, out to about me, okay, and then there's these benches around the side, but there was the little box where they keep the scrolls, and right behind the box is where the bench is, and that's where the that's where the Good dude sits. It has the best seat in the house. You see everybody who's there, and they can all see you. These guys wanted that seat. I want to sit right there. I'm not sitting on a regular bench with regular people. I'm better than that. Same at feasts and banquets. People were throwing parties and banquets and stuff. If you, if you were going to have a party, you would want to have one of these guys there. That was a good thing to do. And when you did, you put them at the right side of the host, because that's the best seat in the house. They wanted that. They desired that. You get to see their character a little bit. Then in verse 40, it gets gnarly. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. You know, in the first century, widows always lived in gingerbread houses, and that's what this means. You know, like, and they're chewing. You know, like, what do you mean they devoured houses? I didn't quite get it. In the Greek texts outside of the Bible from that day, we have language very frequently of devouring a household, and that's used in the context of bilkin. You guys know what bilkin is? It's, that, it's, it's, a, it's a widow who has an estate. Now, in this culture, there's no, she has no legal right to do anything, so she needs an executor, somebody to manage the estate. And in their management of the estate, they manage it in a way that's quite favorable toward them, okay? This was a four-pay gig, so it was a good, the good thing they did, and it was good to be compensated. But what they would do is they would tweak their compensation uh, to the up, and they would get more and more and more until they literally had taken away all that she had left. And it's very common practice in that day. We have sources from there that talk about this happening often with this crew, So how would you characterize these guys? Well, I would say first and foremost that these men do not, in any kind of way, see human beings the same way that God does. They don't look at humanity and say, this is a miraculous creation of God. They look at people and say, these are resources for me. People can be great resources for me. And I can meet with people and engage with people on my terms. That's what they wanted, isn't it? They constantly sought my terms relationships. You people are here for me, and I'm gonna get from you what I want and what I think that I need. That's right at their heart, isn't it? According to their own personal religious values and practices, they can clearly see that they're the most qualified people in the room, right? They've got their system of how to measure where you're at, And they look at their system and they're like, (laughs) I'm awesome, I'm really doing good, I am. And I, I think that you guys should acknowledge that, you know, I am fantastic, I'm more experienced than you, I'm more noteworthy than you, look at my robe, you know. I'm certainly more respectable than you, and if you acknowledge that, we're good. They've proven themselves through all that they've done according to their own preferred measure. They believe that they deserve proper respect. Notice, if they were being measured on the basis of the greatest commandment we talked about last week, they'd be pretty paltry, okay? If they were being measured on God's standard, which is, do you love God with an uncompromised love, and do you love your neighbor as yourself, that'd be an F grade, F, failing, immediate failing the course. But when they get to write their own test, they're passing with flying colors. It's like the pill company, you know, the pill company, eat this pill, put this pill in your mouth and it's going to be the best thing for your life ever. We know for sure by studies that we've done. Like, oh, you did the studies and concluded that what you're selling me is the best for me. That's very compelling. I think that's where they're at. And I think we see from the historical text in that day, Josephus and elsewhere, that people kind of got it. Like, these guys think that they're totally awesome according to themselves, not according to God. Deeper still, I think there's even a deeper one here. We've already touched on it. I think we can observe that these scribes belonged to the people of God to see what they could get out of it rather than what they could put into it. Their motives consistently, in all what Jesus described, their motives are what? Self-gain, self-promotion, self-advancement. Jesus' warning, that's going to hit a little bit for all of us, including me. Jesus' warning against these scribes is a warning to anybody who's entering the assembly of God's people to see what they can get out of it. We suffer from this today greatly because we live in a world that says your best life is on your terms, at no cost to you, that's as convenient and pleasurable as possible. And in many ways, we end up trying to make ministries favorable to that. And we have this sort of ethos that leads to things like this. Well, that church wasn't really doing it for us. It wasn't providing what I already know I need. That's language I hear very common. Ah, I wasn't doing it for me. Doing what for you? It wasn't giving you an opportunity to serve others with your love and gifting that Jesus gave you. There are churches that will keep you from doing that. But I don't know that they're as frequently uh, around as we would like to think. After all that time and effort that I put in, people still don't treat me the way that I deserve to be treated. Yeah, that's at the heart of these scribes, isn't it? Based on all the awesomeness I've brought to the table, I deserve to be honored and glorified at this level. That's right in their heart. Can you imagine Jesus saying something like that? Hey, they didn't treat me very well, so I'm gonna just abandon them. Yeah? I mean, that's at the heart of getting beaten, brutalized, and murdered on a cross, and he says, I'm still not gonna leave you guys. He says, what, forgive them. I really wanted to make it work, I really did, but I just wasn't feeling it. That gets right at the heart of of this scribal heart that Jesus is blasting, doesn't it? I just wasn't feeling it, as though the best church context is one where I constantly feel something really positive. Don't misunderstand me here, okay? Okay. This is not me finger-wagging. I've had all of those exact thoughts in the last decade many times. It's just the way we're conditioned and wired. I don't think that any thoughtful Christian can read about these scribes and these teachers of the law and walk out without seeing the same heartbeat that is pumping a poisoned blood into the life of Jesus' church today. We have to really be wary. Is my heart in the same place as these guys because Jesus warns people that these guys are in a really bad spot and these guys are seeing others as resources they're seeing the assembly of God's people as a place for me to go and get what I think I need and they're looking for for glory for themselves I think we need to choose to follow Jesus I would say, my friends, you, here at Central Bible Church, we will no longer suffocate and die under the deception that says, church is here as a resource for me so that I can get out of it what I think that I need. Instead, I want us as a community to be saying that God alone is our resource. God alone is our source of love and life and security in this world. It's the love of Christ that compels us, not the affirmation or the glory or the things of other people. It's the love of Christ that compels us rather than the promise of valuable resources. So when we minister to others, we're taking them to Jesus, not to feel goodery. We enter the assembly with an uncompromised love for God and for others. And that brings us to the very last scene It starts in verse 41. Let's read this one together. And notice how here Jesus keeps advancing his same point. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put, and he watched the crowd as they were putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts of money, but a poor widow came in, and she put in two very small copper coins. Worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, some of your Bibles will say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or amen, amen. He's trying to say confidently, this is real, pay attention to it. That's what the text would be. It has that emphasis to it, right? Truly I tell you, this widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything, all that she had to live on. What is Jesus wanting his disciples to see here? What is he trying to get at? What is the point? Well, I think that all of us would quickly see, and we've rightly interpreted this to say this widow gives us a picture of devotion. And it's not devotion on her terms. It's devotion on God's terms. It's devotion on somebody else's terms. She is totally sold out for God. And I think that Jesus wants us to see that. She gives two coins, leptas. This, a single one of those coins is worth one of a denarii, okay? Which would be a, a, the average pay for a, a low-wage day laborer. You'd get one denarii per day for a full day's work. A lepta is one sixty-fourth of that coin. <laughs> so It's not very much. It's just, I think you can read some historians which will say that's the smallest currency anybody's ever made in human history. It was really, really tiny. She had two of them left, and she gives them. And the Greek here is stronger than the word poor, uh, it's it's a deep it means totally deprived deprivation or destitution so mark wants you to see a woman who's at the end of her resource think more of a widow of deprivation or a widow of destitution and this is contrasted against the wealthy folks who are giving out of their perisuo or they're giving out of their over and above they're giving out of their abundance our English says wealthy, but it's more specifically, they have much more than what they need, and they're, and they're giving out of that. She does not have even what she needs, and she's given it all, okay? So there's a huge contrast that Mark is trying to make for us here. And I think about that for a second, and I think about my boy Wesley, okay? I like thinking about my boy Wesley often. If my boy Wesley just rips open a bag of M&M's and I say, hey, buddy, can I have a couple M&M's? He's like, yeah, sure. He'll even give me two or three. He has an abundance of M&M's. It gets real different when he's down to his last two. I say, hey, bro, can I get one of those last two? He's like, uh, <laughs> I didn't know you were Satan. You know, that's, <laughs> It's just shocking to him I would even have the gall to suggest that he would want to give up one of his last two. Notice what he's chasing, he's chasing good feelings, right? When you have a bunch, it actually feels worse to keep it all for yourself, you feel guilty about it. That's the way our world trains us. When you have a little bit, the world has also trained you that it feels better to hang on to it. And so, you're really just chasing good feelings with this kind of sacrifice, and that's what he's saying. He's saying even when she's down to her last two, notice I think he uses two on purpose, because if you're down to your last two, even then I would give one and keep one. She gives them both. So there's no doubt that he is trying to help us see how this woman gives a picture for us of that Jesus Creed kind of woman, totally devoted to God, totally devoted to others. He's shown us that she has an uncompromised love for God, and I think that's good, but... I actually don't think that's the main emphasis of this closing scene. I don't think that's it. Here's why. He doesn't call her humble. Is she humble? Yeah. But the language that he does choose to use to describe her is language of being destitute, totally deprived. So he wants us to see her poverty And then the other language he uses said she has nothing left, she doesn't have what she needs, she's given, he wants us to see her spot in life is kind of at the end, and he wants us to see a religious system that is taking from her the last two pennies she has. Has Jesus' whole movement through chapters 11 and 12 in the temple scene not been a giant grenade in the middle of it that blows it up? So on one hand, here's a woman who can live in a corrupted system. She's not whining about it. She's not complaining about it. She is just living in devotion to God. That's a beautiful example for us, those of us who have grown accustomed to the notion that I can worship God for real as long as everybody around me is doing it good. And since nobody around me is ever doing it good, then I'm gonna just perpetually run around trying to find the perfect people, right? Here, she's in the most corrupted system ever, living for God totally. So we see that. But he also wants us to see a, a comfortable, consensus system of religion that was acceptable and proven and, and authorized and all of those things. And it was deeply broken to the point where a starving poverty-stricken widow who's about to lose everything, they say, yoink, thank you. And Jesus says, yeah, this is not going to work. This isn't my kingdom. This kind of stuff is not how we roll. So roll back very quickly with me. We go all the way back to the middle of chapter 11, and what has Jesus been doing in this scene? First opening scene, he's cleansing the temple, literally flipping their tables upside down, overturning the way that they think. They say, this is the way it's supposed to work, Jesus. He says, not at all. You've missed the point. House of prayer has become a house of thievery. Second, he has questions about John the baptizer, and Jesus disrupts their beliefs about how God speaks to people and what he actually says to people. Next parable is the parable of the tenants, scene three in this episode, and Jesus disrupts their understanding of themselves. If they were ever asked, where are you at with God? All of these guys would say, we're, we're really good with God. Me and God, oh baby, we have a great relationship, they would have said. And Jesus says, you fools are the only ones who constantly reject God and his messengers, and you kill them, and you throw them outside of the city and they just can't believe it. He's disrupting their own self-perception. Marriage and resurrection, he disrupts the way that they view this. Religion and politics and how they combine and who pays taxes to what, they have a perfect system. It works, it's comfortable, and he blows that up. The greatest commandment, which was last week, that is the central spiritually forming prayer of the, sh- of, of the Jewish life, the Shema, and he twists it and blows it up and he expands it. It used to be follow God and Torah, or love God and follow Torah, and he expands that to say love God, love neighbor, and follow me. He's disrupting the most central prayer in the Jewish mind. And then these last three scenes we just contemplated right now today. He stepped into the heart of what was believed to be the most godly, Bible-based way of life in the known world, and Mark shows him exploding their little kingdom. He invites them then into the real kingdom of God, and that's what you and I are invited to. So when we step into a church today in Portland, it's good to have expectations that are rooted in reality rather than in our own fantasies. I think that Mark 11 through 12 gives us a really great primer for what to expect when you enter into the presence of Jesus. When I move into life with Jesus, it is anything but stable and easy and comforting and convenient to me. I expect to be called to sacrifice, to bear a cross. I expect that I'm going to be judged. Now that can happen in a really constructive way and it can happen in a really bad way. And I would say this, Jesus is the one who judges us and he calls us to bring one another to Jesus so Jesus can do the judging. That's not really our job, is it? But we expect that in a community that's honoring and worshiping Jesus, if he's present here He's going to be tearing up some of the, the blocks in our soul that we've created to make ourselves feel better. And it's going to hurt. Nobody changes easily or, or pleasurably. It's always hard. But we can expect that. Jesus always called his disciples to lives of generous sacrifice. I expect to be challenged on my sin unless I truly believe that I'm not sinful. I expect to be hurt. The disciples were consistently hurt. You listen to what Jesus says to them. I mean, have to get behind me, Satan. Peter's not like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Boy, that was really encouraging, bro. No, I'm sure Peter was like, man, that hurt. But Jesus wakes him up and helps him. Jesus is not tame, but he is good. And he models for us the instability of good religion. He gives us a picture of that. And it's not fabricated upon the knowledge of mankind. It's deeply rooted in the soil of the gospel, the living water of Jesus, the wind, the spirit, the breath of the Holy Spirit of God. These are moving images. These are changing images. These are reforming, retraining, rebuilding kinds of images. My friend Paul Pastor lives up in the gorge. And he recently published a small book with contemplative reflections on God. So he writes uh, this sort of dialogue between God and human beings. And here's, here's something that he writes. He says, when will you be pure, Jesus says, when will your own heart stop deceiving you? When will you know the depth of your own sickness and the double depth of my healing?" Jesus says to us. You will know this and you will know more when you shall see me as I am and not as you want me to be. He's not just a chip off the old block of King David. He's so much more. If church life right now is challenging our relationships, if it is causing us to question some of our deeply held beliefs, to think more deeply about what we really believe based on how we act, does it match up? If it's forcing us to face our own sin and our feelings of superiority over other people, if it's rebuking us in our faulty ways of practicing religion, we must look for the face of Jesus in these disruptions and not immediately cry foul and say that somebody has done something wrong. Jesus would have been accused of wrongdoing often. He was. It got him killed. In Christ, we have the freedom to receive judgment, to receive critique from others with grace and love, rather than automatically thinking of them as the problem. It's very, very possible that Jesus is doing the same thing with us today as we see him doing back then. I'm not saying that we're involved with Judaistic temple worship, and that is clearly what he's doing there. But we can look at the principles behind what he's doing, and we can say, huh, I think this is the kind of guy who's willing to shake us up and help us to see him. Here's another brother from Scotland, Peter Rollins. He said this on a podcast earlier this year. It's a killer podcast. If you want it, send me an email, and I'll send you a link. He says, God is always an explosion into our own kingdoms. And so to actually place yourself in a church is to place yourself under judgment, under critique, to put yourself in the context of perpetual destabilization. And so in a sense, this is a powerful and productive beginning to transformation, and isn't that the same we've been talking about for the whole year? He's not just getting us from A to B. He's making us into new people. We can hear Jesus saying to us today, I run the real church. And you can clearly see in my gospel that you guys have been reading for a year here. You can clearly see that I enter into human lives and I break them and I disrupt them and I reformat you, and I rebuild you, and I have shed my blood and my sweat and my tears to create a community in my world. My church is gonna be the community in this planet, and when it is healthy, it serves as the number one most transformative, life-changing experience you could ever imagine. It's raw and painful. It's not domesticated or tamed, but it's filled with the infinite love of God. Welcome into Jesus' community. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for not being the kind of God that we can define and clarify according to our own terms, but instead you stand above all genealogies. You stand gloriously on high as the uncreated eternal being the fully complete creator. You are great and you are greatly to be praised. Would you help condition our hearts so that we can be prepared for the training of transformation, so that we can become a people who drop the pettiness of this world and get serious about listening to you, not afraid of you, always trusting that you're good and knowing that life with you is going to be intense. We love you with all of our heart. We love you with our lives and we trust you fully. Amen.